0: Uh, Mark chapter 2 and 3, uh, we're going to just look at more of the end of Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3. Uh, you've heard the statements, I'm sure, before, uh, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, or enemies make strange bedfellows, uh, usually around politics or different areas like that, where uh, people you would not put together end up end up together. Uh, in the end of Mark 3, or verse 6 of Mark 3, Uh, You're gonna you're gonna see that happen. It says, and the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. uh, To to put it in quick context, the Pharisees would be your uh, your very strict legalistic, uh, very religious, devout uh, Jews. The Herodians were uh, a group of Jews, but they were more like the secularists. They had very little to do with the religious dynamics. They were pro-herod antipas. They wanted they wanted to see the Greek area and the, that to be restored. They liked the Hellenization. They did not like necessarily all of the Jewish perspectives. They wanted to be progressive in their, their different areas. And so at the end of at the end of this verse, you have these two two people you would not put together in normal situations coming together, and it says that they they went forth and how they might destroy him. Uh, you can remember back just a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, we went through something similar to this word destroy. Uh, the the Senate, and there was all the confirmation hearings for, for Judge Kavanaugh. And it was an intentional dynamic to torpedo, to destroy everything about his reputation, about the man, and whatever it was going to take, it was going to be launched at him in order to undermine, underpin everything that he had established and and take him out completely. That's the idea that is being driven at here in verse 6, that they're seeking to destroy him. We know that eventually it's going to get to the point where they don't just want to destroy Jesus and his reputation and everything. They want to kill him. They want to, to, to just be done with it. But what got them to that point? What got them to the point where they are willing and ready to destroy a man's reputation to to completely take him out. I mean, was it the fact that he, <clears throat> he healed people? I mean, he, he he made people better, he fed people, he comforted people, he cast out demons out of people. I mean you start looking at all the things that he did, and you're like, wait, is is that the reason that they, they want to to kill Jesus? I would argue that it's not necessarily all the things that he did, although we'll we'll see some of that today. But even in what he did and what more than that, what he said. We're going to, if you look back, Mark uses questions to run chapter 2 and 3. He uses it to drive his narrative, to drive his story all the way through. If you go back in chapter 2, uh, down to verse number 7, he starts off right away. The first question comes out, who can forgive sins but but God? And Jesus answered, which is easier to say, their sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your bed and walk. And in order to prove or to validate his authority, He, um, by his power, he commands the man to rise, take up his bed, and to walk. Now remember who Mark is writing to. Mark is writing to the Romans. They are very, very keen on authority, on assertiveness, on power, on somebody who's going to take charge. So Mark's going to highlight that throughout, and he's going to be somebody who takes authority. So he he looks, and Mark uses that question to drive the first part of the narrative. If you go down to uh, verse number 16, Uh, we we get the call of Matthew and then they're going to go out to, you know, Matthew's house and they're going to have this party. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with publicans and sinners, they said to his disciples, here's the next question. How is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? And we we saw that Jesus answered and said the sinners are the ones that, that need the spiritual healing. And by eating with sinners, again, we talked about that he does not approve of their sinful lifestyle, but he is going to show that their lives can be transformed. And remember, the Pharisees were not, were not real big on these people. They were, the, they were the riffraff. They were the low of the low. They the maybe could be transformed, but they were not willing to abide by Pharisaical Judaism and to, to go forward with that. So Mark is going to keep driving the narrative. He's going to go to the, the next question as you go down to verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they came to him and they said, Why do you, the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. And we looked at this a few weeks ago talking about uh, where Jesus gives his answer in the form of an illustration and Jesus is going to answer again with two parables. But he talked about that the gospel, when we looked at it, the gospel is unique. It's exclusive. You can't mix it with other religious systems. It's incompatible with any other religious system. To try and to take uh, Christianity and and Catholicism and smash it together, Christianity and Mormonism, it does not work. It is exclusive. The gospel cannot coexist with any other system, whether works-based Christianity or non-Christian or atheistic or Judaism. It does not, it does not synchronize together. And so Jesus answered their question again. Now you go to the next section where we're going to, we're going to pick up today. And there's going to be another question in in chapter verse 24. The Pharisees are going to look after the situation arises and behold, they're on the Sabbath day. And they say, don't you know that this is unlawful? It's not lawful to do what you're doing. Now, the the situation that arises comes out of the the, uh, disciples and Jesus walking along the road on the Sabbath day. They pick some grain off, they rub it in their hands, they get some of the grain, and they eat the grain, and they give themselves a little bit of of nourishment. And the Pharisees quickly jump on the the unlawfulness of their activity, that this is not lawful according to the Word of God in, in their mind. And so, so that question happens, and Mark's going to answer, and we're going to look at that. And then the fifth question is going to come about in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 4. But this time, it's a little bit different. This time, it's going to be Jesus asking the Pharisees the question. Jesus is going to say to him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, or to do evil to save a life, or to kill? Every single time the Pharisees have had a question, have had, lobbed an attack at Jesus, he's had an answer. Now Jesus goes on the offensive. He becomes the aggressor. He gives out the the question, and notice what it says at the end. They kept their silence. Either they knew the answer and they didn't want to say it because if they would answer one way, it would affirm Jesus, and if they answered another way, it would show their lack of compassion, or they just didn't know what to say. But anyway, it goes, Jesus always had an answer for them. But when Jesus goes on the offensive, asks these questions, they they don't have an answer. So so what is driving them to the point through all these questions, through all these answerings, through all this uh, conversation going back and and forth, what's driving the Pharisees to get to the point where they want to destroy Jesus Christ? Pharisaic Judaism, it was a highly religious system, which most, looking around the auditory, most of you know that. It took great uh, pride, and what's often called their glad restraint from open sins. They were very, they were very glad to restrain themselves from sins that people could see. They would dress appropriately. They would act appropriately. That was part of the issue. We would never be seen eating with publicans and sinners. Why would, why would your rabbi do this? We would never take the grain on the road and be seen caught eating on the Sabbath day? Why, why would you allow your disciples to do this? They took glad restraint to show and say, hey, we, we don't do these things in public for you to see. We know how to act. We know what to do so that everybody around us can see what we look like, how we act, and, and, and so forth. They would never be seen doing the things that Jesus and his disciples were doing. The religious system was extremely works-based. It was, it was very much driven by that. And the pinnacle of this works-based idea was the Sabbath. That when you would go to Sabbath, when it was the day to go to synagogue, you made sure you looked appropriate, you acted appropriate, you made sure you lived by all the sabbatical rules that were laid out so that as people around you saw you, as they observed your actions, as they observed your lifestyle, it could never be said that you broke Sabbath law. And so the Pharisees were the ones who were very um, devoted to this. In fact, the Sadducees would even they would defer to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the experts when it came to the Sabbath. They knew the rules. They knew the ins and outs. They knew the possibilities, the hypotheticals. They worked through all of those different dynamics. And so the the religious leaders of the day they deferred to the Pharisees during this time. So now we come to this area where Mark is going to talk about. He's going to give us two of what are called the Sabbath controversies. The Sabbath controversies are a time when Jesus is going to do something on the Sabbath day to provoke, to teach a lesson, to drive some points home. In fact, we won't look at it here, but if you were to go back to John chapter 5, it's the first of the Sabbath controversies. These two are in Galilee. John 5 is located in Jerusalem, and he's going to heal the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. On the, on the Sabbath day. And that's going to be the first of the Sabbath controversies. By the time he gets back to, to Galilee up here, words, word's gotten out. People are well aware of, of what has happened, I'm sure. But now we're going to get to two different Sabbath controversies that all the gospel writers put back to back. And they put them back to back, looking at, and looking at the points of what is, what is Jesus saying. So thinking about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the authorities on the Sabbath. Now, in this case, number one, the Pharisees were were the authorities of the Sabbath. When they went in verse number 23 of chapter 2, that it comes to pass, they went through the cornfields. It's probably not corn like we think, more like a wheat grain. Uh, Went through the fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn or to take the heads off and to to rub them. And uh, Luke talks about in Luke 6, Matthew in chapter 12, uh, to, to eat some of that. And the Pharisees said, Behold... Why do they do that on the Sabbath, which is not lawful? It's it's inappropriate for them to to be doing this. So when the when the Pharisees were to look at that, every single person in that culture would have looked and said, "If the Pharisees are saying this is not lawful, this is not lawful." The common tendency would have been to back down to acquiesce and to say, "Okay, you're right. We need to either repent or change or do something different." But Jesus is going to going to look at it. When we talk about the the uh, the laws of the Sabbath. There there are hundreds and hundreds of laws by which the Pharisaic Judaism was governed when it came to the law. Now, when we look at the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20 is going to give us the the aspects of uh, the Sabbath. It's going to say to to keep the Sabbath, verses 8 through 11. In fact, Leviticus 26 reminds us of it, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, They all go through some different areas, Dealing with the fact that we 're to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy that the Jews were supposed to do that, and gave them some practical quick practical this is what your man servant, your female servant, your animals you're, no work you are you 're to cease from doing that, so the Torah laid that out, but there 's another there 's another religious set of writings that comes into play that we need to understand when we think about what is happening with the Pharisees. Because when you look through the Old Testament, you're going you're gonna to get maybe about 38, 39 different rules or applications of what does it mean not to be doing some sort of law or work on the Sabbath day. But by the time you get to Pharisaic Judaism in New Testament times, you're talking six, 700 different rules that you're supposed to keep when you go through exactly... How do you how do you remember what you did? I mean it's it's little things like you don't pull your chair out because if you drag your chair when you pull it out you may make a furrow in the ground and that's the same as plowing. So therefore you plowed on the Sabbath day. That's not allowed. The the some of the Talmuds talk about you can toss you can toss a ball or a piece of fruit up in the air. As long as you catch it in the same hand you toss it up, that's fine. But if you catch it in the other hand, it's work. I don't know why it's work, but apparently if you do that to that, it was considered work. There's, there's a whole bunches of little. You didn't, you didn't wash, you didn't uh, do a full, full shower for the, for the sake of you may drip, and it ended up cleaning your floor. I'm reading through and just getting some of these. I'm like, I, I don't understand them all, but they were things that the Pharisees had wrestled through and come up with. These are, these are sabbatical laws that we're going to, to live by. So there's this, this group of writing, it's called the Talmud. The Talmud takes the Torah, and then it takes what is called the Oral Law. The Oral Law being passed down through generations had been written down, and they took that plus some of the commentary on the Oral Law. So you get multiple different things, not just not just the Word of God, but you get these Oral Traditions that are being passed down. You get all of this written into these different writings, the Mishnahs, the Gemaras. You can look all those terms up if you ever want to, uh, and I'll give you the, the spellings later if you want. You can go read them. Uh, But all of these religious writings to to get to the point where you have all these rules to follow. Things like you can take 1,999 steps away from your home on the Sabbath. If you take the 2,000 step or about 3,000 feet, now you've traveled too far, you've worked too much, you can't do it. There's actually an account of one man who he was going out and he lost count of how many steps he took. And he did not remember how many. And so for fear of traveling too far on the Sabbath day, he just stayed there in that spot because he didn't know if he, if he would go back too far, if he would have crossed over how many steps he took. It just drove fear and burden on people because of all of, all of these laws that, that were there. There's, a, there's about 24 different chapters of Sabbath law in all the Talmud. One, one rabbi put it, he said, it took me two and a half years to understand one chapter. And that's what you've got to abide by and figure out how to abide by for every single seventh day of the, or sixth day of the week, the last day of the week. You've got to figure it out every single time. You can understand why, why Christ comes along and says, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's different than the burden that you're feeling, that, that, that you're, you're struggling with. They're, they're facing some difficulties, some, some hardships that are there. What happened though if the, if the law conflicted. If the, if you're, you're reading through and the, the Torah, the law says to do this, but it says not to do this. So what happens if it says, like in this case, Exodus 20, don't do work on the Sabbath. And then it also says in uh, Deuteronomy 23, 25, that you're allowed to, while you're traveling through to pick grain, to, to eat it from your neighbor, but you couldn't gather a full bushel or you couldn't reap with a sickle or you couldn't gather enough to, to go sell but you could grab a little bit and, and go through that. Was it okay? Was it, should I not do work? Should I do? And that's where the Pharisees would wrestle through it for, for years, for years, they would do that. So then you go to the, they would go to the Talmuds, They would go to the Mishnah. So in Shabbat seven, it says, it talks about no winnowing. It talks about not rubbing that, you know, the, the grain together, not eating, not cooking things that you had not already prepared. It talks about those things. in, uh, in fact, uh, in the next section here, where you're going to get in chapter 3, we're going to get to the situation where the man has the withered hand, and should Jesus heal them or not? It, it's going to go right back to, should he heal the man? Should I not? Well, one of the, one of the uh, Talmuds, the Mishnah says in, in Shabbat 22, it says that on the Sabbath day you do not fix a broken or a dislocated foot or a, a bone you let that go until the next day. The only thing you would do is if something was necessary, necessary meant life-threatening. So you break your ankle on Sabbath day, endure the pain till the next day. Do not get it set. You don't do that. So is Jesus going to fix this withered hand on the Sabbath? There seems to be these conflicts and these individuals, the Pharisees, who are the authorities, are watching. They're wondering, what is he going to do? How is he going to handle it? And the Sabbath had basically got to the point where it had become... The most difficult, wearying, burdensome day of the week for many Jews. But that wasn't the purpose of the Sabbath. In fact, number two, I wrote down there the Pharisees substituted the law and purpose of the Sabbath with their own traditions and expectations. They took their traditions, they took what they expected people to be doing on the Sabbath, and they negated the purpose of the Sabbath. They negated the, the reasoning, the law that was there for their own uh, areas. Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, verse number 3, it, it lays out where Jesus or God is going to talk about the Sabbath. Remember that He is going to, um, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He sets it apart because in it He had rested from all His work which He had created and made. So the Sabbath day, when we talk about the Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath... It's a God-ordained day. This is something, it was something that God had ordained from the very beginning. The word Sabbath means to cease. It means to cease from your normal, and it's done with emphasis, from your normal work routine, from your normal habits, to take some time. I never thought about it this way, but it really was a gift from God. The Sabbath was an opportunity for somebody who was living in a society where it was you must, you needed to work every single day for God to say, you need to take some time. So it was a gift of mercy by God to mankind to say, take some time from the normal aspect. Take a break, take a relaxation, refresh, rest, enjoy the time, enjoy your time with God and and remember God. It was designated to bless humanity and enhance its well-being. And we know that God is over the Sabbath. He was the one who ordained it. He is the one who is in charge of the Sabbath. He is the one who said, this is one of my commands. This is what you need to be doing. So God is the one who was there. This is not a, uh, it's important for us to remember that, especially in uh, verse 27, it talks about the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's important for us to remember God made the Sabbath, God ordained the Sabbath, God is the, the one over the Sabbath. This is not a verse, and it's, I remember it being used by a friend in college. It's looking and saying, see, I can do whatever I want to do when it comes to church because God, God is, man is made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man, or vice versa. And he would somehow twist this and say, this is just a way for us to look and say, God really doesn't care what we, what we do as mankind. We can just do whatever we want. Well, the irony is that's what Jesus is attacking with the Pharisees because they were doing what they thought they wanted to do, not what God had ordained and God had set the Sabbath apart for. So we have to look and say, it's not just, hey, do whatever you want. There is, there is structure that was designed here by God. Now, obviously we know, and we know from our teaching, this, this Sunday our Sunday is not Sabbath day. Okay, we'll talk about that in a few moments. We're, we don't come to Sabbath school Sunday school is Sunday. Sunday is a different day than Saturday. And the Sabbath, they're two different things. But what had happened with the Sabbath is it had become a ceremony, in Jesus' mind, a ceremony of hypocrisy. Individuals who were coming out they were showing with pomp and circumstance whether how they gave their tithes and their offerings, how they prayed in public, how they dressed so everybody would see them. But it became very much a show that when you would go there and you saw somebody with really good, really good clothes, you would show them preference instead of the shabby looking, ugly person who's over to the side, James talks about. So it was a consistent battle that people faced. The traditions and the expectations of the Pharisees turned uh, the blessing of the Sabbath into a great burden. So it really was for people becoming a burden. Jesus was struggling with this. He did not like it. And, he, and he's, gonna, he's gonna attack it. He's gonna deal with it. In fact, that's what he does. Christ is going to challenge their authority and the traditions of the Sabbath. Now, it doesn't mean that Christ did not uphold parts of the Sabbath. Where do you find himself? Even if, He didn't just like say, I'm not gonna do anything with the law. You find him in chapter 3. He goes to the synagogue on Sabbath day. He, he does do that. He does uphold the aspects of the law. Um, but he's going to challenge him. Notice in the first situation, he attacks b- both situations a little bit differently. The first situation, where it's talking about um, his disciples eating on there, uh, verse 25, he says, have you, ne- have, you, have you never read what David did when he had need and he was hungered and he was there with him? how that he went into the house of the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests. And he gave them also, which was with him. So he's going he's to use 1 Samuel here. He's going to talk to him and say, hey, haven't you ever read? Now, think about that statement. If you're a Pharisee, have you not read the Old Testament? Are you well-versed in the Old Testament? And here's this guy in the middle of the synagogue saying, you know, or in the area, have you not read this? Don't you know, you act like you know all these things. How did you not know this? And so Jesus uses this moment to say, maybe, maybe you don't understand everything that you think you do. And so he, he highlights that, he brings that out to him, and um, he uses scripture to argue his point in this situation. He's going to say, hey, do you remember David? It, 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 David went in to Abiathar and to the high priest there, Elimelech, and he asks for some, some bread, He says, my men are hungry. They're fleeing from Saul. And he looks and he says, well, all I have is the holy bread. I only have this consecrated bread. And the priest actually looks at David and says, well, if your men are holy, if they've kept themselves from women, then for these certain days, then I can give this to you. I'll I'll let you do it. The priest initiated it. The priest saw the desperate need of the individual. And he saw that it was more important to care for the people than it was just to, to practice a ceremony or a ritual. And so he puts the ritual aside. David's men have been holy. They have been separated from the women for that time. And he gives those men the bread and allows them to have sustenance looking beyond just the ritual or just the ceremony. He looks to meet the needs of of the people. In the second situation in chapter three, Jesus becomes the aggressor in the situation. He he steps forward in it. He's not going to let them set this stage. He's going to... be the aggressor, and he's going to use logic with them. He looks at the man. Remember, it's the, uh, there's a man there with a withered hand, verse, verse 1. And they watched him. In other words, the Pharisees are scrutinizing his every move. Whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, he said, Stand forth or, or rise up, come to the middle here. And he said to him, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Or to do evil? He's going to give him the two opposite ends. Which one should I do, good or evil? Should I save a life? Or is it better to kill the life? Now, the guy may not have died right away, but it was going to affect his livelihood. He says, any, any other day of the week... Would it be right for me to heal this man? They would obviously have to say yes. Do we do something to save a life any other day of the week? Well, on the Sabbath day, a day that was meant for rest, for joy, for celebration, why should I not be doing good? And he he leaves that out there using logic to, to make them wrestle with, if we say, yes, go ahead and heal him, now we've affirmed Jesus's position. If we say, no, don't heal him, then we look like these compassionless, merciless people who have no concern for people whatsoever. What do we do? Jesus is master with his logic, masters of the, of the question. He just leaves it there. They don't have an answer, but he's challenging them and he calls them out. And this is where he's at. So Christ is going to reject. When he looks at the Pharisees assessment, they look at themselves as individuals who have mastered the, the uh, Sabbath They've mastered their religious righteousness. And Jesus is going to look and he rejects the Pharisees' assessment of their spiritual condition before God. They feel they have mastered this. They feel like they are the leaders. They are the ones. And yet Christ is confronting them, bringing some of these things before them that they have to look beyond the facade and have to deal with some of the inward inward sins. He uses Sabbath, the Sabbath controversies to point out the inward or the invisible sins of their heart, their pride, their mercilessness. I mean, you remember remember the John 5 situation? The guy, 38 years, he's been on a bed, never been able to walk. Rise, take up your bed and walk. What are you doing? It's on the Sabbath day. Why are you walking? It's like, can you get more, less compassionate? Then a guy can finally walk after 38 years and you're like, what are you doing? Take it up your bed. It's the Sabbath day. What's the matter with you? They were so caught up in the ceremony that they forgot about the individual and the passion and the compassion toward the person. So Christ is dealing with these individuals on an inward spot. You want to get, you want to, get to the point. You know how it is. When you're confronted with sins that no one else knows about, your eye your, or mine, mine does, I get a little riled. And if somebody else finds out about that sin that I'm struggling with and they point it out to me, I'm not usually right away like, oh, thanks so much. I'm so glad. It's like, why are you don't do that to me? The the blood starts to boil. Well, Jesus is just probing, he's poking. And these individuals are starting to wrestle with their arrogance, their pride, their self righteousness. Where is it at? So Christ challenges them, and then he's going to claim, he's going to take claim of the authority of the Sabbath. He's going to claim preeminency over the Sabbath, and thus over the Pharisees' authority. It becomes really the bit, one of the biggest challenges in chapter 2, verse 28, where he says, Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And the original it has the idea, the Lord is the Son of Man also of the Sabbath. He's, he's very clearly looking, saying the Lord is the son of man I am the lord and I am over the sabbath you pharisees are not over the sabbath I am over the I am with god so what we already know god is over the sabbath that's been established the pharisees would not argue that but now all of a sudden in this claim in what jesus says he is again making himself equal with god he's making himself he's making a, a god claim and on top of that He's asserting his authority over that institution in which the Pharisees have had claim. They have had the stranglehold on. And now Jesus is doing these things that they would never allow. But he's saying, this is, this is right. And I have the authority to do this because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So they don't like that. They push. And as Lord of the Sabbath, we need to remember... If he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he is, he also has the right to do away with the Sabbath, which Hebrews chapter 4, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, it talks about that we don't have to we don't have to be held to the Sabbath anymore. They are put aside. So, we don't have to look and say, well, we still have to do Sabbath. No, the Lord of the Sabbath has set them aside. We're not we worship on Sunday. We worship on that first day remembering and commemorating the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. Not on the Sabbath day. They are not, they are not equal. So he claims the preeminency. And after he lays this all out, Christ gets to the point where as the narrative flows through, as the story flows through, what's it driving to this big... All of chapter 2 into chapter 3 is driving to this big conflict that's going to take place. Christ is going to be angered and grieved at their spiritual stubbornness. Everything is driving to this point. That he's looking at these people and he's saying, I'm showing you all these things. I am telling you all these things that you can have forgiveness of sins, that your lives can be transformed, that I am God, that I am above all, that I can forgive sins. And what are you going to do? And how do they respond? They hold their peace. Verse five, and when he looked around about them, he did it with anger. It's the only time that the word orge, anger, is used explicitly directly with Jesus. Now, there's times where Jesus is zealous. He purges the temple and and righteous indignation comes out. But the word here is an anger. He looks around. You can almost picture the stare going through, cutting through your soul, looking at you and saying, how dare you? And all of your religious facade miss what is right here the compassion to be able to show to this man, to help a man who needs it. So he, he is angered with them, but the beauty of our Savior is what's the next word? He's grieved. He's angry with them, and yet at the same time, he's sorrowful. He's, and, and I found comfort in that, knowing that my God, at times I give him reasons to be angry. And yet I'm so thankful that he is a compassionate God who looks past some of my stupid sins and will forgive them when I repent. Now, in regard to the explicit anger of Christ, it's, it's righteous because, and I think this is important for us to remember, you can have a righteous anger, but it needs to be directed toward evil, and it needs to be controlled. Okay, we need to, we we can, anger is the emotion that drives us to deal with, you know, some of the parenting things we need to do. It deals with, it's the emotion that drives us to do what is right at times, but it needs to be toward evil and it needs to be controlled uh, in order to do this. What caused this anger and the grief, the sorrow, the spiritual arrogance of these individuals, the unteachableness, the externals without the internals? He looked. Maybe he's thinking back to Isaiah chapter 1 and 58 where he talked, God talks about, I hate your hypocritical Sabbaths, that you go about and you do all this worship acting for everybody else, how you think you should act and being like you should, but inwardly, it's not there. And those are challenges to me. They should be to us. Though we don't come to Sabbath on Sundays, but when I come to worship, is it just to put on a facade? Or are the internals is everything on the inside good? Spiritual arrogance breeds hard-heartedness. Or sometimes I I write it the other way. Hard-heartedness is rooted in spiritual arrogance. Either way, do we feel like we have all the answers, that we know we've done it, we've been down the road? I was thinking about, think about Jesus. Jesus is 31, 32 years old, maybe at the most right now. How old do you think some of those Pharisees were? 50, 60. Some of them probably could have been like, all right, sonny, you know what? You're out here doing this, but I'm going to tell you right now, I was doing this synagogue before you were even born. You know, there, were, there, were, there, there were older men, younger, but Jesus is this young guy coming on. There's, there's a challenge there. There's some struggles. And yet he looks and says, your spiritual arrogance can breed hard-heartedness. Do we sit often in church and say, I, I already know this. Pastor opens up to John 3.16, click, uh, I know that, you know, oh, he's going to teach on salvation. Yeah, I'm saved already. I got, I got that all figured out. And we start tuning out stuff. The older we get in our faith, oh, I know that passage. I've heard, of, I've heard 50 sermons on that. And our spiritual arrogance can breed hard-heartedness. So we have to be cautious that we don't do that. And Christ ends up forcing a response. He forces a response to his way. He looks at them and he basically, with that question, he drives at What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And in verse 5, he says, stretch forth your hand. He looks at the individual and says, stretch forth your hand. Now, he wasn't going to heal them. The man had to actually stretch forth his hand. He had to have some belief that Jesus was going to do it. He could have looked and said, no, I don't want any part of this. You know, he's just a pawn in this whole thing at this moment. I mean, he could look, and go, I don't want to get in the middle of those guys and you. Something, something big's going on. Just leave my hand the way it is. No, he, he stretches out his hand. What are the Pharisees going to do? Are they going to, to, to wrestle through forsaking their way that they've done, held to, the traditions that they've held to, the things that they've always done, and they're going to follow Jesus? What about the disciples? They're, they're still new in this. Are we going to follow the authority of this new one? He's definitely radical. He's definitely a little bit different, but are we going to follow him, or are we going to go back to the, Pharisee, the Pharisee's way? Are we going to go back to just our old lives? And we know as you get into John, John chapter 6, which comes after the first of the Sabbath controversies, there are a number of the people who were followers of Jesus who, after they started hearing some more of his teachers teaching, they, they separated ways. So there was that difficulty of what are we going to do? And he brings people to that response saying, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? As I was looking through the whole passage and trying to sum it all up, I really, I really do think that idea of the, the hard-heartedness is, is rooted in spiritual arrogance drives this whole thing. But I had some other musings that I just personally wrestled with. I thought I'd write them down, let you think about them. But I need to make sure in my personal life and ministry practices, that they're rooted in God's word. Now, the the default is like, well, of course they are. You're here, you're a pastor, you're gonna make sure. I need to make sure personally that what I do in my life and what I do is not just because, well, that's what we always did and that's what my parents did and that's what my grandparents did. I'm thankful for the heritage that was handed down to me. I don't want to tear down the walls before I know what they're there for. But I need to look and say, why do I do what I do? Why do I do the ministries the way I do it? When I'm passing down my traditions, my beliefs, my convictions, my ideas, my teachings, to my children. I need to, I need to think about, as they get older, explaining to them why. According to God's Word, why do we do this? Not just we do it just because I say. There are times, I understand, as kids are younger, you're going to do it because I'm dad and I said so. Deal with it. You know, but also later on, explaining some of the why's according to God's Word. At times, I need to reevaluate. This was me. I need to reevaluate my life, my ministry, my practices, ensuring that they are in accordance with God's purpose. He's like, well, if they were at the beginning, hopefully they are later on. But you know as well as I do, as life goes, as things happen, you might change this, you might change this down the road. And those little changes, all of a sudden you look back, and you're like, wait, how did I get to here? And why am I doing this? Let me reevaluate. Let me make sure it's in accordance with what I'm trying to do according to, to God's word. The Pharisees have this long tradition of doing, 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 but they don't go back to God's word. They went back to their oral traditions, to their teachings. Another one I thought for me, I should be willing to evaluate challenges that come from others in regard to my traditions, my teachings, my ministries. If somebody, if somebody comes to me and says, why are you doing this? I can't look and just put up the dukes and say, all right, we're going to... Now, if, obviously, if you're going to, you know, break some cardinal doctrine to say, I don't think you should hold to the deity of Christ, <laughs> we're not going to be nice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue very vehemently with you. But if, if a challenge comes and says, hey, th- think about this or that, I need to be willing to reevaluate, to look at the scriptures, to look at why am I doing what I'm doing, and not just say, well, because I'm Grandpa Billy, and we ain't never done it that way before, and that's the way I've always done it, and so I'm going to leave it there, and I'm never going to reevaluate. The Pharisees did not reevaluate. They got pointed out. They brought to a point, and what are they going to do? Just looking at my life, that was just, those, are, those are some thoughts for me. But more than that, I want to make sure that as we look at our lives, making sure that each week we come to worship, each day we wake up, Lord, what can I learn new? I don't want to be hard-hearted. I don't want to be spiritually arrogant and think that I've arrived and I've got it all figured out. Help me to be teachable. Help me to be moldable. So that as I hear God's Word, as I learn from God's Word, I can be impacted by it and to grow from it. So as we think about that this week, let's be teachable from the Word of God. Let's enjoy that time also that we have now for a little bit to spend some time in prayer. Let's do that now. Thank you.